0: The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today Now well, let me read you a list of chapter titles from the book we're about to discuss with its author because they are certainly provocative and really gets to the heart of the issue of this book. They go along the lines of, can you be racist to a white person? Has political correctness gone too far? What's wrong with dog whistles? Is it sexist to say men are thrash? Do all lives matter? Who is cancelling whom? Are we responsible for structural injustice? And that's just a sample from the book Arguing for a Better World, how to talk about the issues that divide us. And we are joined by the author, the philosopher Ariane Chavasi. Thank you very much for being with us, Ariane.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Matt.
0: Arguing for a better world, it is so difficult at present, isn't it, given that the extremes that we hear and that are ventilated on social media so often, both on the right and on the left. But is that really representative of the way that we discuss issues or is that the extremes making most noise?
1: Yeah, I think undoubtedly, the extremes are making the most noise online. Um, And I do think that were we to sit down more of us and and actually talk to each other about some of these issues, we'd actually get further than we think, um, in trying to change each other's minds. And that's kind of what I was hoping to do in the book is to actually just show what kind of arguments can be made um, for these positions. So in my case, you know, the the arguments that I'm making are against racism and against sexism and against homophobia and against all sorts of other marginalising positions. And what I've done in the book is just tried to show why I think that. And I think if we did more of that, we might, you know, have more hope of of actually convincing one another and just having a more productive and enjoyable conversation.
0: How open is your mind to the persuasiveness of others? And the reason I ask that is that so many people seem absolutely set in their opinions and now react almost violently to the idea of being told that their opinion is wrong.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a certain degree of openness that's just necessary if you work in a university, for example. Um, So, you know, I'm a researcher and a teacher Um, And without some degree of openness, I just wouldn't be able to do my job um, because my job is to learn and justify my views. And so that requires a certain degree um, of openness. Um, I wouldn't say my position is movable on every single topic, um, but I certainly like to hear somebody out um, and hear why they think the way that they do, because I think then I have a better chance of moving them um, but even in the process of writing this book, my mind was changed on, on particular issues, um, because when you write a book, you have to think very carefully about things. Um, and so it's actually quite a helpful process in that regard. So I'd say my mind is, is open on lots of things, but I've also spent a lot of time thinking about some of the is- issues that I discuss in the book. Um, so
0: and a lot I've of people got- probably don't spend time, even though they have exceptionally firm positions. But what things did you yeah. change your mind on?
1: Um, so I changed my mind on w- when I was thinking about structural injustice towards the end of the book. So towards the end of the book, there's this last chapter um, where I start thinking about climate crisis. Um, that's the primary sort of topic of the chapter. Thinking about um, the role that individuals have um, in, uh, you know, the, the role that we all play in in creating climate crisis and contributing to it. Um, and I went into that chapter. Um, feeling very worried about um, my own contributions. So for example, I'm a person who um, is quite careful about doing my recycling. um, And I eat a vegetarian diet, for example. Um, And I really wanted to kind of persuade people in that chapter that those contributions are important. Um, And although I still do think that that those things are important in some ways, I think in writing the chapter, I realized that that was an unsustainable position to some degree. And ultimately, I was going to have to come to the conclusion um, that the, the change is going to have to happen at the top Um, we're going to have to see governments make those changes. Our own uh, individual behavioural changes are really just a drop in the ocean. Um, And so my mind was changed there. As I say, I I do still think it's important um, for us to to make those changes, but I think it's important to kind of recognise where they sit in that broader context and the smallness of them in some ways.
0: And if people don't make those changes, will they ever be able to persuade their governmental masters to make the changes?
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think that, and, and ultimately that is the conclusion that I, I come to in the chapter, which is that those behavioral changes are helpful. They're helpful because just from a kind of cognitive dissonance perspective, if you're going to ask a government to make certain changes, it's going to be very difficult for you psychologically if you're you're not doing your best um, in your own life as well. Um, but also, um, I just, I, I feel as though, it can be very helpful for us to prepare for that world that we would like to see if that makes sense so it'll be much harder um, in a world where we all have to cut down on how much meat we eat if you're if you eat a lot of meat at the moment right whereas if you have kind of voluntarily made those sorts of changes that would be a, an easier and and more uh, it would feel like a more voluntary transition
0: you mentioned that you teach at university or at the brighton and sussex medical school where you That's teach right. philosophy Universities are also something of a war ground in the culture wars at present. With, yeah. so when you have situations whereby people are shut down or told that they can't say certain things, our guests are what the phrase is deplatformed at yeah. various speaking events. How do you feel about that, given that you've already said to us that it's important to hear out people and listen to them?
1: Yeah, I do think it's important to hear people out. I think in the context of a university, there's something really interesting going on there because not everybody gets invited to speak at a university. Um, and the choices that we make about people, you know, who, who gets to come and speak should really be choices about who has a valuable contribution to make to a particular debate. And. Um, and I think that gets a little bit lost in these sorts of discussions. So I think the reason not to invite certain people to come and speak um, is because they don't have something interesting to contribute to the discussion. I think what's happened with inviting, for example, far right speakers um, and then students getting very upset about it. And I think quite understandably, um, given the kind of marginalising messages that are put out by such people. um, is that actually that person probably shouldn't have been invited in the first place because academically speaking, they haven't really got anything interesting to say. So I think that's where we exercise some discretion about uh, which speakers should be be speaking on on a campus um, and in a university setting in much the same way that I make choices about the kinds of readings that my students do in my classes. And I make those choices based on the merit of the work if that makes sense. So I try to offer them, you know, a, a really good set of, of different views um, so that they can see how a debate unfolds. But really, there's got to be that kind of um, academic strength to that work. Um, and so I think when it comes to, um, you know, no platforming speakers, I think there are better arguments to be made about not inviting people who aren't saying things that, you know, have any particular value within, within the university space.
0: So does that mean that cancel culture does exist?
1: Yes. So this is something that I spend a lot of time uh, talking about in the penultimate uh, chapter of the book. And this is actually another occasion where my mind changed in the course of writing and, and reading lots of things that other, pe- other people have written on this topic. Um, I do think that people do get cancelled. So, it's, you know, in that sense, cancel culture exists um, and and being cancelled is is having your reputation damaged in in some way so that it makes it difficult to kind of participate in in public life going forward. Um, There's lots of complexities when it comes to being cancelled. To start with, the sort of people who get cancelled are generally people who Started out by having some considerable platform, so that's not most of us, really. We're talking about people who are famous, really, or who have a lot of followers. So we're talking about a very small proportion um, of people, and and what typically happens is is they they you know st- make some wrong step in in, in their public life, um, either. As a one-off, or you know, or you know, many many times, um, and as a result, people withdraw their support, which I think is a perfectly reasonable thing for people to do. We, there's no requirement that we continue to support um, those who we disagree with. Um, so I think it, it exists uh, to that degree. Um, I'm not especially concerned about it. I have to say, um, when it happens to famous people in that particular way. But, and here's where the complexity comes into that chapter, I am concerned about how we deal with one-off occasions of wrongdoing, um, because I think we perhaps don't have the healthiest ways of doing that. And I think we really do have to, you know, figure out how to, in a kind and patient and productive way, help people back to a place where they can continue to participate in society can atone for their errors and can do better going forward. And I think we're not very good at that at the minute.
0: So distinction to be drawn perhaps from those who consistently try and provoke almost to dare people to cancel them with others who might make a single mistake and who then have the wrath of the mob brought down upon them.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So I I think that's the distinction um, that I would make there, Um, because we all make mistakes. And I think what's really, really important is learning from those mistakes and being helped to learn from those mistakes as well. Um,
0: Sorry, with that in mind, Ariane, because another one of the questions that's posed, is it ever okay to laugh at jokes that rely on racist, sexist, or homophobic stereotypes? Because a couple of things leap out of me there. One is what it says about you if you find those things to be funny. Yeah. But secondly, what about the people who actually tell those jokes if it is deliberately to outrage or is it to test the limits of free speech as the likes of Ricky Gervais, for example, would argue?
1: Yeah, and I think that fundamentally on that question, I feel as though comedians can do better. Than that, um, I think it's a question of how good your material is fundamentally. There's lots of stuff that's funny out there. And I think there's been a, a, a wave of, of more recent comedians who've demonstrated um, that actually you can be absolutely hilarious and you don't have to um, be kind of contributing to kind of harmful discourses about marginalized people. So I think that's perfectly possible. Um, but I think it's also true um, in lots of cases that, you know, there are comedians who are making these kind of jokes. Ricky Gervais is, is a good example. Um, and I've, I've become less and less a fan of him as he's kind of veered off into, into that direction. I think it's unimaginative more than anything else. Um, I think if you, if you live in a racist and sexist and homophobic society, as we do, then to some degree... You know, many people are going to find those jokes funny. Um, but I think we need to do a little bit of questioning about what is going on there Um and, you know, who is being laughed at and what function that that humour then has in further marginalising a particular group. Um, so I don't think comedy has to be that way. I don't think it's especially interesting or imaginative for comedy to operate in that way. I think it's perfectly possible for comedians to do better. Um, and I think, for example, Hannah Gadsby's show, Nanette, kind of demonstrated that there's so much complexity to comedy, you know, Um And, you know, there's a great deal to be said about how those jokes function. And I think we could all do to do a little bit more thinking about that.
0: Who's your book for? Arguing for a better world, how to talk about the issues that divide us. Do you think that the people who might actually get something from it are ironically, perhaps the people least likely to actually pick it up and read it because they might have a preconception about you, particularly if they've just heard you now on this programme?
1: I hope not. I mean, fundamentally, the work is, you know, the book is a work of philosophy. Um, every chapter makes use of philosophy to get across its central points. Um, and, you know, it's not inaccessible. It's written in a very accessible style. So you don't need to know anything about philosophy at all um, in order to to pick it up and start reading it. So I think perhaps there's a, there's a set of readers who are just interested in thinking more carefully about these issues. They may not agree with me. Um, Given what they've just heard me say now, they may not agree with me even once they've read the book. Um, I'd be very disappointed if everybody agreed with me. I think, you know, the whole point is to kind of, you know, illustrate the ways in which some of these views can be justified um even those people who listening to me now think oh i probably do agree with her on on many of these things you know i would hope that they would read the book and come away thinking well i agree with some of that and some of it i find difficult and some of it i i think she's got wrong um i think that's healthy um, and productive. So in that sense, I hope it's a book for, for everybody who's interested in philosophy, everybody who's interested in social justice, everybody who's interested in, in sort of critical, reflective thinking um, about the way we live in a society together and the way that we use language um, and the way that justice operates. Um, and for those who who already feel that they probably do agree with me and that they're opposed to racism and sexism and homophobia, for example, um. I think sometimes we don't have the best arguments to hand. And I hope the book can help people to um, think through their own arguments um, and maybe um, pick up a few new kind of tools and resources through reading the book.
0: Ariane, thank you so much for joining us. Ariane Chavassi is the author of Arguing for a Better World, How to Talk About the Issues That Divide Us. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30.